Hello and welcome back to HIF Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you S.A. Cosby and Chris Hammer live in conversation at the 2023 Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Sit back, relax and enjoy an insightful and entertaining discussion between two masters of the crime writing genre. Well, thank you guys for being here. Thank you everyone for coming. I really appreciate it. I'm not going to speak for Chris, but he can speak for himself. But I am uh, all the way from the United States, and I'm just so, so honored um, the way the uh, readers in the UK have embraced my book. So thank you all for having me. Yeah, ditto. And um, as I say, Sean, I still pinch myself. If this was five years ago, I mean, we'd be lucky to be led in the back, back of the <laughs> tent because we weren't published or we weren't well-known then. My first book, Scrublands, was published five years ago um, in about a week's time in Australia, more recently than that. So I still sometimes think, oh, am I really meant to be up here on the stage? Am I really meant to be talking? So I want to start by asking you, Sean, how did this happen for you? How did you become the writer you are today? Well, thank you for the question. First of all, if it was just five years ago, I wouldn't be here because I was broke. Uh, so I wouldn't have been able to afford a flat fare to come over here. Um, um, so I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, my late mother used to tell this story. I don't know if it's true, but as, as they say back home, if it isn't true, it should be. Um, she would read me bedtime stories when I was a little kid. And um, around five or six, she had read me The Three Little Pigs. And she told me that I complained about the story because I picked up the plot hole in it. And so I was like, why didn't he build all the houses out of bricks instead of just starting with sticks and hay and, and straw? And ever since then, uh, she's encouraged me to, she encouraged me to write my own stories. And so when I was nine years old, I wrote this terrible, awful short story about uh, these spacefaring gnomes <laughs> that lived in the uh, magnolia tree in our backyard. And my mother read it, and it was awful. Man, I make no bones about that. But she was so impressed with the fact that I had to come up with it on my own. And she kept asking me, did you come up with it all on your own? I was like, yeah, all by myself. And the look on her face when she was reading it was this sort of, like, this sort of high that I, I've been chasing ever since. And, um, and so uh, I studied writing in high school and college, dropped out of university, continued to study writing. I got my break um, in 2016. A friend of mine, I had, a, I had a girlfriend who was a belly dancer. True story. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, she went to New York City, and she did a performance. And at the performance, she met this gentleman who published a magazine of crime fiction in America. And she came home, and she said, I met this guy, and he, he wants new stories, and he pays. He pays $100. And I really needed that $100. And so I was like, well, I'll write a crime story. I write, I read crime fiction. I love it. I mean, I, I think I can do it. And uh, I wrote it, and I sent it in. Had no idea whether he would take it or not. He did, and that sort of started me on my way uh, as writing crime fiction. And uh, I have just been uh, very lucky and blessed that things have turned out the way they have. So I'm going to ask you the same question. How did you get started writing fiction? I know you've been a journalist for a while, but what was your first fiction um, story? Well, I, I tried to write a novel in my 20s. I, I really like this idea of being a writer. Um, 
Trouble is, I didn't really like doing the writing because, <laughs> you know, I was in my 20s. I had the attention span of a gnat. So I wrote this book. I've, I've still got, I mean, truly awful, just appalling. Um, it's only more recently when I get to talk to other writers that I find this is a really common story. You know, the, the biggest name authors in the world. Everyone started the same way, right? And some of them, not just one book, like three or four books in the bottom drawer as you, as you learn your craft. But I thought, it's a nice idea, I just can't do it. So I, bec I became a journalist. And I had this great career. I, I, I covered mainly politics, Australian politics, but also had two long stints as a kind of roving foreign correspondent. And I... I reported from more than 30 countries, six continents, you know, everywhere. Um, but after a while, I got a bit tired of journalism. I had the opportunity to write some non-fiction books. And so that was my, like, stepping stone. And they call it narrative non-fiction. So you're telling a story. It's not an essay or a history or something like that. In my case, it was kind of like travel writing at the height what's now called the millennial drought in Australia. <laughs> and it was the worst drought in recorded history since European settlement. Um, and I travelled all through the major river system, the, the Murray-Darling Basin, which is about twice the size of Germany. It's big. Um, and I didn't realise at the time, but it was training me in how to tell a story, how to write a book... Um, some of my locations, the locations from Scrublands and the location for Dead Man's Creek came out of that trip. Um, anyway, I learned three things from, I, I, from writing those books. The first and the important one was I could actually write a book because <laughs> until you do it, it's like you know, climbing Mount Everest. The second thing I found, <clears throat> I enjoyed writing the book. Unlike in my 20s, I liked the process. I was used to being edited, I think, the journalism. The third thing I learnt was there's no money in writing books in Australia. <laughs> like, most public, the average income for a published author in Australia is about, uh, it's about $12,000 or $13,000, so uh, 7,000 pounds or something. So you can't live on that, right? And I couldn't live on it. And my wife told me, OK, You've indulged yourself, go, go and get a proper job. And I did. Um, went back and to journalism. But I missed the writing. So I thought, well, I, I don't have the time. I don't have the resources to do non-fiction. I'm going to try my hand at writing fiction. I thought, well, what will I... I, oh, I don't think I'm good enough to write literary fiction. I didn't know <laughs> what to write at. And it was one of those sliding door moments, but... I'd always liked crime fiction. I always liked that, <clears throat> the hard-boiled detective, the Dashiell Hammett's, the Raymond Chandler. But when I was, you know, 20, 21 at university in a bush town in Australia, my writing teacher was this guy called Peter Temple, um, who became the, the well, he's South Australian, South African, uh, the first Australian author to win the, the um, Gold Dagger. Um, wrote the Jack Irish books, so, wrote some, so I thought, and I was a great admirer of his, so I thought I'll try my hand at, at crime fiction and with the expectation that they would do as well as my non-fiction. In other words, well-received, well-reviewed, lots of compliments, no money. And lo and behold, um, 
I think in large part to the massive success of Jane Harper's book, The Dry, a lot of publishers in Australia, here, the US, everywhere, were looking for those sorts of books. So it was the right place, right time. And I still remember the day we got this book deal in Australia. And by this time, I'd, I'd, I'd been sacked. Um, happens a lot in journalism. Um, you know, the big media companies contracting. And I had a meteoric career as a political advisor. It uh, lasted three weeks. <laughs> and uh, we got this... Uh, and there was this... Um, they call it like a bidding war for the book. And I remember my, my agent rang me and she started going through the bids. And it just... There was this one global... And in that second, uh, my life changed. Suddenly, I could be a writer. It was, it was almost like a miracle. It was it's unexpected, really unexpected. Yeah, that's the thing about writing is like, I think before you get into it, you look at it and you think that publishing is like this very finite pie mm. with a finite number of slices. And then once you get into it, you see there's room for cozies, for thrillers, for... Uh, procedurals and so on and so forth. Um, much like you, I I worked a lot of different jobs before I became a full-time writer. I was a construction worker. I was a ship's uh, mate on a fishing boat. I worked at a funeral home or a funeral parlor. Uh, I was a security guard at a bar or a bouncer. Uh, I had a whole bunch. Of, I was a retail manager for like 10 years. And when uh, I decided to pursue writing full-time, like I was going to get serious about it, uh, the woman who's now my wife, um, she said she runs a funeral parlor. She's like, you should come work with me at this funeral parlor because you're never going to write the books you want to write working 40, 50, 60 hours a week at a retail store. And I went and told my boss, and I said, you know, I think I'm going to leave and I'm going to go work for, uh, with my girlfriend. Uh, I want to pursue writing. He said to me, he says, well, you know, that writing thing is very up in the air. You know, you, you probably won't make it. And I was like, oh, gee, thanks. And um, <laughs> And he said, but if you don't, there's always going to be a place here for you at the store. You can always come back. So the day um, Blacktop Wasteland got published, I took him a copy of the book, and I signed it to him. And I was like, to Mike, I don't think I'm ever coming back. Love, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about writing is it, it gives you a sense of freedom. Uh, we were talking about this last night over many Many drinks. Um, <laughs> I grew up in in, in uh, southeastern Virginia, very poor. Um, we grew up, uh, my mom and my brother, in a small I, I, a mobile home caravan type trailer. Um, I've always worked really hard. Um, and so when you start seeing success as, as a writer, it's almost, for me, I almost felt a little embarrassed because I was raised in such a blue-collar environment that you've got to work for your hard and you've got to, you know, struggle and then, you know, you've got to uh, earn the money that you're making. And I love writing. It's so much fun. It's way easier than being a construction worker. And so I, I sometimes am a little embarrassed, a little overwhelmed with how blessed I am and how lucky I am to be able to do this and do it for a living. Um, was, we were talking about something last night and I thought it was funny I'd bring it up. There seems to be sort of this sort of hard-won camaraderie between Southerners and Australians. Yeah. Uh, I, I dated a girl from Australia one time, and uh, she, she liked to drink moonshine. And so I was like, <laughs> I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. <laughs> no, on the, the camaraderie, not the moonshine. Uh, <laughs> um, I th look, I, I actually, I do think that's, that's um, right. There's a, 
I think this is common sense of humour too. Yeah. Right? Sort of like a self-deprecating, mm. you know, some little bit anti-authority kind of sense of yeah. humour that's there. Um, is humour important? You think in in crime books? Do you? What I do you think, think it about? is. I think it, I think gallows humour is important. Mm. Um, I think. You know, when you write about crime, a lot of times you're writing about really dark subjects. And even in in life, in real life, you could have one of the most traumatic situations going on, and you could still find something funny. Or you still, I, I saw that a lot when I worked at the funeral home. Yeah. Was people who would use humor to get through these really, you know, the awful, most awful day of their lives. Um, so, like in my most recent book, there's a little bit of humor. It's not a, it's not a chuckle fest, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, Razorblade Tears, I used a lot of humor. Uh, one of the characters, uh, Buddy Lee, uses humor self-deprecatingly. It's also a defense mechanism for him. But also, as a writer, you do use humor, I think, sometimes to kind of cleanse the palate, so to speak. Um, you know, I've, I've read Scrublands, I really loved it, and, and my books are, are similar in that they're really dark. And I think if you're going to give people that sort of darkness, you sort of have to give them these these sprinkles of light as well. Yeah, I... I, I... I, th- I figure there's kind of two ways of doing it. You can do that kind of psychological thriller, that very cla- claustrophobic type of book, and you're really there. You, 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 you don't want to l- ease off the pressure. You want to build it up. You want to ratchet it up so that chapter by chapter. But then I think with my books, I'm more like the light and shade, and sometimes by, by inserting a bit of humour or lightness, it then, by contrast, makes the dramatic scenes all that more dramatic, you know, and, and maybe maybe blindside the reader to an extent, oh, they're, <clears throat> they're going in one direction, then wham, you know, mm. they're, ba- they're back into the, into the drama of it. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think using humour as a way to kind of uh, shape the narrative helps. You know, uh, you can have something really dark happen in Chapter 12, and then Chapter 13, you know, the hero can't get his car started. You sort of make a comedic yeah. thing out of that. Another thing that we, I think the crime writers use a lot is violence. And I was wondering, do you ever get questions about the violence in your books? Do people feel like it's too much? Or do you feel like it's gratuitous? I, I get that. My books are very violent. I mean, you know, I'm actually a nice person. So don't judge me by my books. It's like you, you were talking about the Barack Obama thing. And there's a part of me that's a little embarrassed because it's like, oh, please, Mr. President, don't read Raise Away Tears again. I'm so sorry about the curse words. I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about the wood chipper, but I'm really worried he read the curse words. <laughs> it's, it's interesting the things that people object about. So with violence, <clears throat> you can kill anyone you like, you know, in the most <laughs> awful ways. But no, animals, no. Don't kill a dog. Children, you know. And if you do, you, it's sort of off the page, if you know what I mean. The things that people object to is some people are very, uh, some readers get very technical like uh, cars, guns, guns. You know, there are people in America who just, well, gun nuts in the sense that they're obsessed with them. Mm -hmm. So you never describe a gun in detail because you get it wrong. I learned that the hard way. Yeah. (laughs) And and swear words. Yeah, I I remember going to uh, this, this country town in Australia and this woman got up and she had a very proper accent. She said, I, I just think... I'm not sure why you use so many swear words. It's, it's, I think you're stereotyping people who live in the, in the, in the Australian bush. You know, we really don't swear. And the whole place just burst into <laughs> laughter. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you do. 
I had a conversation with my editor when we were working on All Sinners Bleed, um, and uh, this is not a spoiler or anything. There's a series of murders in the book, and the, the victims are uh, are young kids. They're 12 to 15 years old. And uh, she called me, and she's like, you have a lot of victims in this book. It's like 15. Can we cut it back to half? Cause, you know, can we cut it back to seven or eight? Because I, I feel like you know, there's a lot of kids in this book who are getting hurt, and we want to be careful about that. And we were on the phone, and I was being a bit cheeky. And I was like, oh, fuck them kids. They'd be all right. <laughs> she didn't say nothing for like two minutes. <laughs> I was like, I'm kidding, Christine. I didn't, I, I mean, I'm, I love kids. I don't have yeah. any. But, but I've learned that with, with writing, you can kick a baby in a crime novel, but you better not lay a hand on a dog. It's like, <laughs> it's like the thing I get the most, anybody who's read All Sinners Bleed will know what I'm talking about. There's a certain scene with a sheep in the book. That's the thing that people yell at me about at writing. They don't care about the kids buried under the weeping willow tree. They don't care about the guy that got his face cut off. They're incensed about the sheep. And I'm like, but do you eat mutton? And so I, <laughs> if you eat mutton, don't be too upset about the sheep. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I learned this lesson when I was a journalist. There were these, this is decades ago, there's these really severe bushfires and I was out reporting on them. I was a television reporter. And... Um, we had just this one shot. This is the aftermath the next day or the day after. Right across the far side of a paddock. <clears throat> and it was a, a farmer shooting sheep, putting them out of their, their misery, you know, that had been caught up against a fence line. And it was just really far into the lens and the, and the gun going off. And, I mean, the people died in that bushfire. There were no complaints about that. And, you know, I was out there, 40-degree heat, and you can imagine what the smell is, mm. all these burnt sheep and flies and awful. But yet there's these people, you know, the, I like the switchboard. It wasn't one or two calls. I hold the switchboard almost melted down because we, we dare to suggest that, you know, there were animals in distress. So I've always... That's one of the things that stayed in my mind in, in, in writing, um, I guess, crime fiction. Um, and, of course... Of course, the great thing about crime fiction, people sometimes say, do you miss that? Do you miss journalism? <clears throat> and I don't. <laughs> I find fiction just so liberating that you just get to make stuff up. <laughs> I mean, who knew? I don't have to worry about defamation. I don't have to worry <laughs> about protecting sources or contempt of court or contempt of parliament. And the other great thing about writing fiction is you can tie up the loose ends mm -hmm. at the end of a, a novel. Mm -hmm. And... and when I get to that stage of the novel, because I don't really plan the books out, if I can get it all to come together, that's a, it's a feeling of deep satisfaction. I, I that. feel that. I, I get a lot of catharsis out of my books. Like in my books, if you read any of my books, any character who uses like a racial epithet in the book, mm. eventually somebody's going to hand them the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't always get to do that in real life. So yeah. I, I, I feel very satisfied when I'm able to write that in a scene. Yeah. Um, but also, like you said, you're able to tie the loose ends. You're able to give closure in a way that doesn't always happen in real life. Um, and for me, writing is such just, it's the one thing that I really think I'm, I'm, kind of decent at. And I don't mean that self-deprecating. I don't mean that disingenuously. I read a lot of, I found a lot of writers I think are way better than I am. I found, I used to say, um, you know, if I'm a writer, anybody can be a writer. You know, you know, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And a good friend of mine, Jordan Harper, he pulled me aside one day and he said, stop saying that. Because if anybody could do it, they would do it. 
They said, what we do is special. And I watched, uh, and then a couple days later, serendipity, I watched a uh, special with Alan Moore, the comic book writer. And he said something that stuck with me ever since. He said, we are the myth makers. And you judge a society by the myths and stories they tell about themselves. And then when you think of it in that way, writing is this sort of like grand profession that we are very privileged to be a part of. And this grand tradition that extends back to, you know, the first time people sat around a fire or drew pictures on a cave all the way through to Shakespeare, through Agatha Christie, all the way down to, to us. Which I'm sorry, we're not Agatha Christie, but you know what I'm saying? But it's a part of this long, grand tradition. And when you think about it like that. I, I, I'm honored to be able to make stuff up and do what I want to do for a living. I, had a, I used to have a relative. I, I, wait, I didn't used to have a relative. He's still alive. But um, I had a cousin who used to make fun of me wanting to be a writer. And every Christmas, we would all, my family would get together. And he said, you still doing the writing thing? I ain't seen your books in the bookstore yet and all this stuff. So a couple years ago, I got my, uh, my first royalty check. And it was nice. I ain't gonna lie. It was great. It was it was fantastic, and um, I went to a I, I I don't know if they have them here, but I went to a Kinko's to a copy store, and I had to blow the check up, <laughs> <laughs> and I took it to Christmas dinner, <laughs> and I sat it in my aunt's living room. I didn't say anything. I just sat it in Rome. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a petty person. Petty is my favorite color. <laughs> I wanted to ask you. We were talking at dinner last night. What What would you say? Not just Australian, but just in writing in general. What would you say were some of your influences uh, as a writer? Or reading writers that you liked growing up, or that you read. I, one of the things that I like as a reader, and, and my books are quite. They're longer than your typical. Uh, crime fiction book and that's uh, hopefully it's not because they're full of padding and a flabby but there's lots of uh, plot lines going on and, and in my more recent books multiple points of view and whatever but as a reader the sort of book I really like to read is that immersive read where, you, where you're reading it and you, you leave the, your world behind your worries, your work, your family and you just kind of vanish into the book and I think because I love reading those sorts of books. That's the sort of book I'm trying to create. And sometimes people say, oh, well, well, what's the most important thing in a crime book? Is it plot? Is it character? Is it setting? When I started writing Scrublands, I thought plot was the be-all and end-all of a crime book, right? And certainly you don't want to have a lousy plot. The better the plot, the better it is. But everything else has got to work too. So... The setting for me is really important. When I start writing a book, I typically start with the idea of the setting and a kind of idea, the seed of an idea, and then the, maybe the protagonist. Sort of and then it builds up from there. But my idea is that if you can get them all working in harmony, the setting, the characters, the plot, the pacing of the book, the language you use, if you can get it, build it up to, Together, it's so that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, and it becomes that immersive world. And you know, I've just I've just finished like a week ago the final edits on my next book, and by the time I finish the book, I'm totally consumed by it, and it's almost like I'm reporting on a real place, even though it's totally imaginary. So I think right from the time I was a little kid, the first book that really caught my imagination back when I was six or seven was a um, 
was a King Arthur book. And, you know, it was all daring do and nights. But um, I think what grabbed me was the ending because it's not a good ending, right? <laughs> you know, his best mate runs off with his wife yeah. and, you know, his bastard son sort of, you know, usurps him and, you know, it, it doesn't end well. And I was thinking, wow, this isn't Disneyland. <laughs> but this, it got me, it got me, it sucked me in. I, I was in that world as this, this little kid reading the book. So I think rather than nominate a particular writer. So I, I mentioned Peter Temple, I think, you know, is a, a kind of a something of a, a literary hero to me, I guess. But I think more than that. And so in some ways I think that's what I'm trying to do with a crime book as opposed to simply just some books, you, you know, just like going on a ride. And they're, they're great too, they're great fun. I'm not saying my books are better than that. It's just the way my mind is working. What about you? If for me, so when I was a young kid, I, I read voraciously. Um, like I said, again, we were poor. We didn't have a lot of entertainment, so I read a lot. Uh, you could go to the library. I, I still am just in awe of the concept of the library. It's like, oh, we come in this building, and you give us books, and you, I promise to bring them back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you trust me. Um, but uh, when I was a little kid, my, my I, everybody in my family read. So my uncle read detective novels. He read uh Raymond Chandler, Ross McDonald, uh, John D. McDonald, Mickey Spillane. I love the Mickey Spillane books. They weren't the best written books, but they had the most lurid covers. And when you're like nine or ten year old, like, oh, I love this. Uh, my, uh, my mom read uh, biographies and Greek mythology. She's a huge Greek mythology fan. And I remember when we were kids, she would, we didn't have a lot of money, but when she did get money, if me and my brother wanted some, she would make us solve riddles about Greek mythology. I remember my brother was 17, he's like, I'm getting a job, because I can't do this. He's like, you're the smart one, I'm, I'm done. And uh, my grandmother read romance novels. Yeah. So I grew up reading, I would just take her Harlequin romance novels. And it, it's one of the things about romance novels, it will increase your vocabulary, because as a kid, you don't know what the words mean. And so you gotta go to the dictionary, like, what does do message mean? And I'm like, oh, see, you know. And I'm like, <laughs> And one, but my favorite author when I was a kid was Stephen King, and my aunt, uh, she she loved Stephen King books. So I was like eleven or twelve. She um, would give me her books after she read them, and so she gives me Salem's Lot. She's like, "Look, I'm gonna give you this book. It's really scary. Are you gonna be okay to read it? I don't want your mom mad at me." I'm like, "I'm fine. I'll be good." Read that book, then spent the next two weeks with a popsicle crucifix <laughs> under my pillow. I was afraid Ralphie Glick was going to come to the window. <laughs> Stole my grandmother's silver uh, butter knife. Yeah. And I was like, I was just preparing myself for the battle to come. Um, <laughs> but reading those books showed me the, the power of writing. Because I was consumed by those books. I read everything Stephen King wrote. I read everything Raymond Chandler wrote. And then later on, you know, Walter Mosley, Elmer Leonard, uh, and then a little more literary stuff like James Smiley and uh, John Updike and stuff like that. Um, it just showed me the power of writing and what an author who is at the height of their powers can do. Because when you are connected, when you are immersed, like you said, into a book, that author has control of you for an hour, for two hours, three hours. They're controlling your thoughts, your feelings, and that sort of connection is the thing that I strive for with my books too. I, I want to ask you, I, to take it back, you back, you're saying one of your sort of quiet joys in writing the book is, you know, if, if, if there's some, someone mutters a racial epitaph or something, <laughs> they're going to, you know, they're going to get handed their teeth. And yet, 
some of your racist white characters, and I'm thinking the guy in uh, Razorblade Tears. Tears. You start reading and you go, yeah, this is this is an unsavoury guy. You don't like this guy. And yet there is a great deal of empathy. The way you treat that guy by the end of the book, he's such a human character. Oh, thank you. But is that does that just happen or is that a deliberate thing or in that particular book it was deliberate because I wanted to have this situation with these two characters. And the plot of Razor Blade Tears is two fathers, one black, one white, both ex-convicts whose gay sons are murdered at the beginning of the book. And they had they go decide to get revenge and also try to redeem themselves. I wanted to force the conversation between the two of them. I wanted them to recognize that they both had blind spots. They both had narrow-mindedness about different things. And with Buddy Lee, Buddy Lee is what I like to call a casual racist, where he's not actively racist. He just has racist ideas. But he's the type of person that I've run across in my life in the South that's willing to change, that's willing to have the conversation about who they are and how they feel, you know. And so that was a deliberate thing on my part. Um, yeah, in most of my books, Buddy Lee would probably end up, uh, you know, getting curb stomped. But in this book, I really wanted to have that conversation about change, about your moral arc and, uh, and what that means to you. Um, the thing I, I've, I've read Scrublands and the thing I love about Scrublands is not just the authenticity because you're from Australia, you, you know, you, the book is set there, but there's an authenticity of just humanity in that book. And so I was wondering if you could maybe talk about what inspired that particular book uh, and what drove you to write that. So uh, that was my, my, my first crack at a crime book, Scrublands. Um, I was learning on the job and I, I went through multiple drafts. I threw out hundreds of thousands of words. And I just had this idea, the seed of the idea, I had the setting, which was the town, which I'd, I'd spent a week out in that area. It's a fictional town, but the, the landscape is real. I went to this little town called Wakul. It's an irrigation town, and its river was bone dry. So an irrigation town with no water. You know, desperate place, desperate times. Farmers walking off their farms, banks foreclosing, people suiciding. And so I thought, that's, that's, that's my setting. Now, what's the idea? And the idea, there's, a, there's a, a, a quite a dramatic prologue where a priest shoots five people dead. And then a year later, a journalist comes to town to write what's known as an anniversary story, and which is, you know, how what's happened in the year since. Um, and I had done some anniversary stories. A, 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 a perceptive... Um, I hadn't even thought about this, but a perceptive interviewer said, I know you've done one. He said you went to um, uh, you know, Sumatra, um, Aceh, a year after the, the tsunami that killed hundreds of thousands of people there. So well, that's right. But the, the, the one I was really thinking of, and I only... This wasn't a deliberate thing. This is me unpacking it later. I, I did a story in a town in East Texas called Jasper. And you, I'm sure you know about this. There was a horrific murder there where some white extremists uh, got an African-American man called James Bird Jr. They tied him to the back of a pickup truck and dragged him along the road until he was dead. And I, it wasn't even a year later. It was maybe three or four months later I went there. 
Now, it wasn't to do a story on the killing because it was just a shocking, appalling crime. There was no mystery to it. There were witnesses. The guys had been caught. I think they'd already been tried. What I was doing was a story on uh, how the town was coping. And a lot of the story was about race because it was a racially divided town. Not by law, but by custom. You know, there was, it was almost like literally the railway track. Whites on one side, blacks on the other, whatever. And Scrublands is, not, is nothing like that. There's, there's not, it's not a story about race at all, uh, Scrublands. But it was just that idea of a journalist going in and something terrible had happened in the town. Mm-hmm. And then, though, the journalist starting to discover that the accepted wisdom, the accepted story of what had happened was, in fact, not true. So that was that, was that seed of the... Uh, and some, but other bits, like the priest... I've got no idea where that came from. <laughs> I don't know of any... I mean, certainly not in Australia, of course, but you know, even in the States, I, I don't know of any sort of event like that. Um, which brings me to ask you a question. So, so I've, I've read um, uh, Razorblade Tears and Blacktop Wasteland, and they're rip-roaring, compelling crime books. You know, they get you in and they're full of pace and action and whatever, um, and if you haven't read them, please do. But beyond that, you, you're touching on some really mainstream kind of political societal issues, like razor blade tears. You've got class, you've got race, you've got homophobia. You, you're addressing this, these big issues. Is that foremost in your mind or...? I mean, yeah, no. I mean, there are things that I want to talk about when I write. I think as writers, again, we're duty-bound to talk about the things that move us, but nobody wants a 300-page sermon, you know? And so you, again, go back to Stephen King. He said this in his book on writing. You can talk about anything you want to talk about as long as your story is compelling. The story's compelling, you can have any conversation you want. And so for me... The books that I loved, again, reading, like you would read, a, if you read Raymond Chandler, if you read the, the Long Goodbye, you think, oh, it's just a private eye novel. But really, it's now about post-war Los Angeles. Uh, he never calls it this in the book, but Philip Marlowe is going through PTSD. He was, a, he was a soldier. That's why he drank so much. That's why he spends so much time alone. That's why he's such a good detective, because he separated himself from the rest of society. He's able to look at it in a way that is very clear, but to the detriment of himself. And so when I write these stories, I want to talk about race and class and homophobia and and toxic masculinity and violence and all those things. But you have to bring people in. So like in Raised by Tears, you know, the the wood chipper is the honey. And then the the, the masculinity discussion is the the medicine that's underneath it. Mm. But I think if you start out trying to write a polemic or a screed, nobody's going to read it. Uh, You know, you have to have a good story. You have to have something compelling to talk about. And then once I get you in, you know, then I'm whispering in your ear about the subtext and about other things that are going on. Um, And it was funny you say that because with All the Sinners Bleed, uh, initially, I actually violated that rule when I first started it. I wanted to write that book about police violence in America. And I wrote, gosh, 40,000, 50,000 words. It just wasn't working. Because A, it was, it was going to be a polemic, it was going to be a, a rant, and B, I didn't have a grasp on the character or the story. I just knew I was angry about this thing. So I had to take a step back, take a breath, and really look at it again. And once I was able to reevaluate it, 
it, it, it moved a lot smoother. Um, but I think, you know, I think we all, regardless of what, you, what genre or subgenre you're in, whether it's thriller or cozy or, or whatever, there are always subtextual things that exist in the book that you're talking about. You know, uh, I grew up reading Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers. And on the, on the context, on the surface, those books are really interesting, really clever mysteries. But on the subtext, you know, they're talking about class in the UK. And they're talking about a certain type of person. That The thing that used to crack me up when I read the Agatha Christie books was everybody in those books went on holiday. No matter what, <laughs> no matter what your station was, we're all going on holiday. And I, 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 we never went on vacation as a kid, so I didn't, I didn't understand that. It was so funny that no matter what was going on, I'm like, y'all should stop going on holiday because people get killed. <laughs> you know, stay off the now. And so um, I wanted to, ask, no offense to an Christie fan. Um, I, love, I love the books. I, I wanted to ask you something else we talked about the other night. What is your like? What is your process for writing? I know mine. I know where I have to be and what I need when I want to write. Would you like maybe speak about a little bit of that? Yeah, it's um, I I pretty much write every day, and you know I've just finished a book like literally last week, so and now I'm already kind of things are starting to bubble away for the, for the next one. I write every day and and. I say that and people go, oh, that that shows great self-discipline. But it's not. It's more like I'm addicted to it. It's like I'm a gym junkie or I've got to have my cup of coffee or something. It's just, if I don't do it, it doesn't feel quite right. So right then, usually by lunchtime, I'm I'm done. I, I just can't create anymore. But it's more like over the year, it builds up a momentum. And so... At some point, this, this, it's almost flipped. Instead of me driving the story, the, the story starts driving me. I'm very much in that um, in the panther sort. You know, you have this idea of the plotters who plot everything out, and then the panthers who write by the seat of their pants. I've also heard that described as architects versus gardeners, mm-hmm. uh, the ones who design and the ones who just sort of water and fertilise and, and whatever. I'm definitely more of that, that gardener. So, so, so it, it builds, some days I'm, you know, some days it's almost like I'm channeling someone. These are these marvellous days, all too rare, and the words just flow out. Um, and then there's other days I'm just staring at the blank screen because, you know, there's some problem with my plot. You know, it's just not working. And often what happens then is... I'll go off, I'll be doing some exercise, I'll be swimming or walking in the bush or any idea or, 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 or you know, the solution will, will come to me. Um, one, of the, one of the benefits of being a few books in, I think, is, is you do have more confidence mm-hmm. that when you, when, you, when you run into those problems, you don't throw up your hands, you say, well, I've, I've done it before, I've worked my way through mm-hmm. it before, I'll probably be able to do it again. So what about you? What's your process? Are you... Um, so for me, I think similar. The thing you said about channeling, I agree with that. That's very true. Like when it's when the writing's really going well, it feels like like I've raised my hand and I've hit a lightning bolt, and it's just coming out through my fingers. Um, that's when it's really going. It's not so well. It's terrible because uh, you really like you. I'm addicted to writing. I just love it. I just there's something about being able to craft and tell a story that really 
brings me peace. It really does. I, writing has been there for me in some of the darkest times of my life. You know, a couple of years ago, my mother passed away. Last year, I had a health scare. Um, before that, you know, when I had breakups or whatever, writing was always the constant that helped me. Uh, nowadays, like you said, I'm a few books in. So when I do have those problems, I can take a walk. Like you said, I'll go lift weights or something and kind of work myself through it. I don't feel the panic that I used to feel when I first started writing. It's like, well, I'll figure it out. I'll do okay. I, I'll come around. Um, that being said, I am the most, probably one of the most self-deprecating writers. I have friends that I know are sick of me calling them, like in the middle of the night, hey, can I talk to you about this book? And it's like, I think it sucks. Let me tell you the idea. I'm going to send you some pages. If you hate them, don't tell me. And you know, they're like, no, it's great. What are you talking about? And um, I do have three writing superstitions. Okay. So... I have a lucky hat that I write in because it was the hat that I wrote uh, Blacktop Wasteland in. So I keep that hat. That's what I write in. I have a I write in a recliner chair because uh, I, I used to write in an office. And my wife, before my book started selling, I think she was like, oh, his writing thing is his hobby. So she would come in there while I'm writing and want to talk to me about, we got to get groceries or are we out of peanut butter? And I'm like, I'm trying to write. So now that my writing has bought us a car, she's like, oh, do what you got to do, leave you alone. And, um, <laughs> and then thirdly, I have to, um, <laughs> this is silly, I have to have my cat in the room. Uh, I have a cat named Flipper, and his job is when I've written too long, he'll jump on the computer and like, that's it, we stop. And so like, usually about uh, two hours, after two hours, he'll make me get up. Um, so those are my three writing superstitions. That I got. I, I, oh, and, and one more, I, I don't start a project until I come up with the title. Oh. I come up with the title first, and then I do the project. I can't do the placeholder thing. I don't know why. My mind just will not. I'll, I once, and then spent like two hours looking at the placeholder title. I'm like, I got to come up with something. I'm not going to be able to proceed past this. So, um, but tell of the clock, it looks like uh, we're about 45 minutes in. So I guess it would be a good time maybe to take some questions. Yeah. But I'll, I'll just make the contrast here. I'm really d different. I, um, I think from being that traveling journalist, I find writing when I'm traveling really stimulating. I'm the one who sits in the noisy cafe or the bar Whenever I go to Sydney from where I live, it's, it's, it's a three-hour drive. It's over four hours on the train. I always catch the train because I'm really productive on the, on the uh, train. So I think that that's, you obviously have your, your, your spot, your, your yeah, zone. Yeah. I'm more, I get a bit restless when I'm, when I'm in the I'm state. Right at yeah. I'm right at I'm right Really different. So, yeah, some, yeah, some questions. questions. Oh, yeah. We got one back there. Hi guys, thanks very much for this really interesting talk this morning. Um, Sean, I'm really glad that you brought up the concept of a writer um, being able to control your thoughts because um, I have a bone to pick with you, sir. You <laughs> broke my heart. Um, razor blade tears, I was in tears by the end of it. and. Um, I just want to know how much of that was, was, was premeditated. So yesterday, uh, Anne Cleave said that she finds out at the same time Vera does what's happening, right, in the story, that, that when the detective knows what's going on, she knows what's going on. So, and you've spoken a little bit about subtext, and, you know, the, the subtext in, in the book is absolutely tremendous, but did you know at the beginning of the book what no, was going on? No, I know okay. what you're talking about. <laughs> and I don't want to spoil it for no, anybody who hasn't anybody. read it, but like, you know, you made me cry. I get, I get angry emails about that a lot. Um, 
And I, you know, I usually just ignore them. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't know that thing was going to happen that we're talking about, that if you haven't read the book, I don't want to spoil it, until it happened. I really didn't. And it upset me just as much as... Good. (laughs) It's a a question I, I ask other authors. Is, do you get emotional as... You're right. And sometimes I think I'm, I'm, I'm writing a scene. I think it's funny. I'm laughing out loud. And, you know, my <laughs> wife's putting her you know, head in it. You, you okay? But then there's other times. Well, I start crying. You know? yeah. I'm, right, it's, I'm just making it up, right? It's make-believe. And yet you get so invested in the book. You get so invested in mm-hmm. the characters mm-hmm. that I find myself, you know, with a tear rolling down. Do you? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a scene in All of a Sudden's Bleed where Titus is talking with his father at his mother's grave. And he's uh, been, his father has been sort of abraded by a minister. And Titus steps in to defend his dad. And there's a scene where he says to his dad, he says, um, after he yells at the minister, he turns to his father. He's like, you know, don't let that guy make you feel bad. You're doing a good thing. And he's like, what was mom's favorite, uh, mom's favorite uh, passage in the Bible? And his dad says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I remember writing that just boo-hooing, just tears running yeah. out of my face. And I, to your point, my wife like reached in, look, she looks up from the sofa because I'm sitting in the recliner yeah. and I got my earphones on and I'm writing and I start crying and she looks, are you okay? You all right? And I was like, <laughs> but, but, but I figure if it's making you cry, if it's working for you, it's probably going to work for the reader, right? Yeah. yeah. Do we have any other questions? Oh, yeah. we got one in the back there. Hi, Sean. Hi, Chris. Um, the question I wanted to ask is, there are a number of writers here, so what would be the one thing you would ask them to do if they wanted to write and make a success? Well, I think writing and making a success are two things. <laughs> so you have to determine what success is for you. For me, when I first started writing, success was somebody other than my mama liking my books. And that was it. I didn't care about money. I didn't care about fame or fortune. I just wanted someone outside my family to think I knew what I was doing. Um, I think the biggest thing that helped me is just reading. I know it sounds trite, but really reading a lot teaches you not only how to write, but it teaches you what your style can be. Because I read stuff all the time that I can't write. You know, I I love Don DeLillo and Cormac McCarthy and, and, and Colin Dexter and read, writers like that. That's not my style. And it taught me, okay, this is the lane that I should be in. But on the other hand, I read like Walter Mosley. I'm not saying I'm as good a writer as Walter Mosley because I'm not. But I was able to see a path forward through his style. So I think reading is the main thing. I think... Um I think writing. So I, I, and I think this is something I learned. Way to contradict from, me, Chris. From, no, from, from, uh, <laughs> from journalism. Um, you can't wait for inspiration as a journalist. You can't ring up your editor and say, hey, I'm not going to file any stories today. I'm not feeling inspired. <laughs> and for me, so writing doesn't come from inspiration. Inspiration comes from writing. And I'll be like a, a day like today when I've been up you know, all night in the, in the beer tent, I wake up and I'm feeling lousy. I really don't want to start writing. But I start writing half an hour in, an hour in, it starts flowing. The inspiration comes from the writing. And two or three hours later, I'm going, oh, that's not bad. That's, that's pretty good. So I'd say that. And I'd also say, don't think of it as writing the perfect book because that's not possible. Think of it as a lifetime pursuit. No matter 
how much you get published or not published or whatever. It's just something you do. And inevitably, you're going to get better at it. I think we had a question right here. Yeah. Uh, g'day, guys. Great chat, as always. Um, I was curious a little bit about landscape, because both of you write amazing page-turning stories with brilliant, memorable characters you remember years later, but you're also exquisite at place, both the landscapes and the people in it. And like you, I grew up reading Agatha Christie. There's a lot of country house stuff or going out. But the Australian and New Zealand and the American South landscapes and countryside and rural areas are very different to rural Britain. <laughs> and I wondered if you wanted to each talk about that, kind of whether what makes those landscapes different and how rural noir from our parts of the world are different to, say, British or Nordic rural noir. I, I think the thing that I, that I take from that is that in America, you know, even as an American, sometimes you don't realize just how big America is, how much space it is. I grew up in a town, in a county where, you know, you call the police, it might take them 45 minutes to get there. So a lot of times, you know, we, uh, I grew up in a town where people handle things on their own. I'll just leave it at that. And so that, that is because of the, of the, of the uh, area, because of the landscape. Um, also, I just loved it as a kid growing up. I grew up near the water. I grew up, like, 20 minutes from the water, 45 minutes from the mountains. Uh, so I grew up swimming and hiking, hunting and fishing. Uh, those things comfort me as a writer. They comfort me as a person. And so when I want to talk about them, I do sort of, that's one of the things I get criticized about sometimes that I, I wax on too rhapsodically about trees and sunlight and then heat and, 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 and grass and stuff like that. But for me, that's all a part of setting the scene, setting the atmosphere. If my hero or my heroine is out and it's a hundred, well, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, they're sweating, they're irritated, they're, the clothes are sticking to them, I want you to feel that. Vice versa, if they're sitting on the porch and the sun's gone down and they're relaxing and they're having a drink and they're seeing the sunset behind the, behind the horizon, I want you to feel that too. So really, I guess I, in a roundabout way, I'm a travel guide for Virginia, because I love talking about the environment there. I, th I think in Australia, the, um, Australia is, is, you know, it's a huge country too, but it's very urbanised, more urbanised than the UK. Most people are living in those big cities on the coast. And the relationship, with the bush, with the out, not just the outback, but the, but the you know there's a lot of wilderness type areas, is is complex. There's this love for the country, but there's also this idea that it's threatening, and um, it it can be dangerous. And there's bushfires and animals that can kill you, and snakes and spiders and all of that. But also. At the present, I think it's really unsettling because of climate change. So there's an element in my books that touches on you know, environmental issues. Um, you know, scrublands the, was the drought, right? Um, uh, silver was overdevelopment on the coast. There's these sorts of issues. And I think one thing that, that crime fiction does touch on often is, is issues of concern to the wider society, often in a way that, that maybe literary fiction doesn't. Um, you know, sweeping generalisation, but um, literary fiction is often about internal conflicts or relationships. But there's something about crime fiction that just tends, 
not in a didactic way, but you touch on these areas. And so for me, that's the, the setting it, you know, in and of itself can be an unsettling environment for the, for, for the reader. Um, and it's important for me, it's almost like, as I said, I usually come up with a setting. It's one of the first things I'm thinking of. And it's kind of informing the way I'm thinking about it, the way I'm writing, even the sort of language I'm using. It sort of feeds back in. So I can't imagine writing a book without knowing the setting or writing a book set in some isolated country town and then transporting it to a city or something like that. It's, it's an integral part of, of the book. It's very interesting. It, it, it used to be that crime... You know, it's the mean streets of, of New York or Los Angeles or, you know, London or, you know, in Australia it was, it was you know, inner city, Sydney or Melbourne. But now it just tends to be, I don't know what, why completely, but it's the appeal to the reader, but certainly the appeal to me. And um, Australia's great because there are so many different landscapes. Um, even with my two detectives at the moment... Um, Neil Buchanan and Ivan Lukic, they're New South Wales homicide detectives and homicide is a state-based crime, so they can't, they can't be investigating in the tropics or you know, Tasmania or something. But it doesn't matter, there's so many landscapes there. You know. yeah. Um, yeah, thanks, Craig. Yeah, I think uh, you touched on something I, I say all the time. Crime fiction is, is some, in some ways the gospel of the dispossessed. Yeah. It talks about things that we as society have either touched on or maybe uncomfortable with in a way literary novels don't not to be derisive but I have a friend who always says literary novels are 350 pages of people talking about maybe doing something and <laughs> crime fiction is like we've done it now what are we going to do yeah. um, so I think we have time for maybe one more question uh, right yes right there I was, I was going to ask about um, how the uh, the themes of you guys books um with, a, with them being not in the UK, what do you think the uh, themes of your locations make can use different to what you read in the UK? Because you both said you read a lot. I think it's interesting with my books especially, I really didn't know if people outside of the South would appreciate them because they are very South-centric. In, in fact, it's almost, I feel sometimes as a writer, that I lean on that. I lean on the South as a crutch sometimes. And I'm actually giving serious thought to writing a book set in Los Angeles because I want to push myself. I feel like I'm I'm moving away from your question a little bit, but I feel like as a writer, if you're not pushing yourself, then you're not living up to your talent. You know, the gift that you've been given, you know, complacency to art is like salt to cooking. Too much of it ruins it. And so uh, for me, I was just overwhelmed that people were able to relate to those stories. I think... The thing that people relate to in, in the books that I write, whether you're in the UK or Romania or my book's been in, published in Amsterdam, is that, you know, you may not be a, a black man from the South, but you've had um, your heart broken. You've, you've maybe had a problem with your father. You've had someone disrespect you or wrong you. And those things, I think, are, you know, and it's the same thing with Scrublands. I'm not from Australia, but I recognize those characters. I know those people. I understand their sort of uh, sensibility. And one thing I also want to touch on something you said, yeah, growing up, like, you thought crime fiction was only in cities, only in urban areas. And I'm going to tell you right now, I grew up in the South. 
There is no scarier place on earth than a southern road at night when the sky's gone full dark and no stars. It is terrifying. I'm, I've been in that position, so. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, I know Australian writers who, 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 chasing success, want to break in a bigger market, so they try and write a book set typically in the United States because it's the biggest market, right? And I'm just thinking, and I've spent a lot of time in the States, but I'm thinking, I can't write a book set in America. I just, it would, people can do it, but I can't. I can't get into that space, the the authentic, like Sean's, I, I love the way that Sean does dialogue because the spirit and the rhythms of the way people talk, but it's very clear and accessible to people in Australia or the UK, right? So if you were if you were transcribing the way that people actually talk, some of it we wouldn't understand, right? So you're you're being able to bridge. You know, it's almost like you're, you're explaining life there to us. You know, the wider readership. Um, so I think. Yeah, there's that, that old saying, you write what you know, and I think that's true to an extent, except I tend to think it's more write what you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I, think, hope that, yeah I, I think that's all the time we have. I want to thank Chris. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys for coming and appreciate it so much. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Hith Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.